The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. Hello, I'm Alan Kohler, founder of Eureka Report Finance Presenter on ABC News and columnist for The New Daily. And I'm James Thompson, Senior Chanticleer Columnist at the Australian Financial Review. And we are the, the Money, Money cafe, cafe, but we're not in the cafe. We're a bit remote this week because of uh, various demands on us. Um, <laughs> scheduling difficulties. Scheduling difficulties, but uh, here we are um, doing the Money Cafe. Now, listen, before we get on to the earnings season, which I want to talk about, um, yes. uh, what's going on at Premier Solomon Lou's business? Um, Richard Murray's quit. Yeah, it's all changed at Premier. I mean, this was uh, Richard Murray used to run JB Hi-Fi and then uh, Solomon Liu poached him to come across and run Premier, which uh, for those who don't know, owns brands like Smiggle and Peter Alexander and Just Jeans and JJ's and Portman's and Jackie E. Um, but he's quit after two years. Uh, it, it's, a, it's, there's, it's a bit of a mystery. Um my you haven't you haven't spoken to him, have you? Uh, I haven't been able to speak to Richard. Um, my my sense from talking to various sources in and around it all is that the fit just didn't quite work. Um, JB Hi-Fi and Premier are very t- different types of retailers. JB basically, you know, resells big uh, brand electronics, whereas Premier designs sources. Um, you know, creates all a lot of its clothing and apparel and goods. But Richard scratch. Murray, Richard Murray, and Solomon Lou both knew that. I mean, yes. uh, and he and I remember talking to Richard about it. He was kind of talking about the the need to adapt and all that stuff. So, what are we saying that he just couldn't manage the? He couldn't manage to adapt. I, I think, yeah, the 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 fit was not right on both sides. Hmm. Like a bad pair of jeans, it just hasn't worked out. There you go. So then no, I mean, not, I, I think. For, for, although, from, I must say, uh, everyone tells me that Richard and Solomon remain good friends, and it's not a personal thing. And um, you know, right. there's no sort of bad will on either side. Um, you know, I guess they they would say that, <laughs> as 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 the saying goes. But oh, yeah, yeah, my, my sense is that you know, I'm sure, that's they're, probably right. You know, I, I'm sure you know. Murray's Richard Murray is still one of the best retailers I've ever seen, and I'm sure that hasn't changed. Um, and uh, Solomon Lou's uh, equally one of the best retail. I just think in this case, just slightly different skills, and it ha- hasn't worked out. So, so now Solomon Lou's talking about splitting up uh, Premier into its various brands, or at least hiving off one or two of them. Yeah, so, so yes, exactly right. He's he's looking at whether any of the individual brands that have grown strongly, particularly Peter Alexander and Smiggle, would work as separately listed companies. Um, and that would mean Premier goes back to being a cash box that owns various stakes in various things, including Breville, the big, uh, um, the big uh, small appliance maker. How much, which- how much the- of, of Breville, does, does it own? Uh, 25%, which is a stake worth about $850 million. Yeah, right. Um, and, and Premier Investments' history is, a, as a, is as a cash box. It all changed about 15 years ago when they bought Just Group, which owns Just Jeans and all those other apparel retailers. So 
yeah, it's um, potentially a bit of change. Look, I don't know whether I don't, you know, I don't think all of the brands work as listed companies on their own. Um, I'm not sure Smiggle's big enough. Peter Alexander probably is, and the rest of the brands would be in one company. I, I don't know if that's big enough, but I, I think even if Lou doesn't go ahead with this, he's trying to say, hey, there's value in here that investors aren't realising. You're not quite getting how big Peter Alexander is, for example, and you know some of the brokers value that part of the business at $1.2 billion. Um, the whole company's only worth $3.5 billion, so there's an argument that he's that Lou's right and the, the value of something like Peter Alexander's not quite being captured. So how's the uh, earnings season going? You, you, you keep an eye on these things. Yeah, I reckon it's going okay. Actually, um, it, it's it's uh, d- depending if on your how full your glass is. It's better than expected or less worse than expected. Um, we have seen uh, you know a slowdown in the second half across most sectors, but it's e- even in areas like discretionary retail, the slowdown has been uh, less worse than the market had feared. I mean, you know, a company like Super Retail Group, which owns um, Super Cheap Auto and Rebel Sports is a great example. You know, uh, analysts were expecting in, in the, the the first six trading weeks of the new financial year that Super Cheap Auto sales would go backwards by 3%. They've actually gone up by 3%. Now, that growth's slower than what they what, – what, what, we saw in most of the 2023 financial year, but still it, it, it's holding up okay. Um, so that makes me think two things. Uh, you know, uh, we, we've possibly been too negative on, or I've possibly been too negative on how companies are performing, but it also makes me wonder about what's ahead. You know, have we overestimated the resilience of mortgage holders? Um, the pay rises that people are getting, the savings buffers that they've still got, and does that start to unwind? You know. Um, so what are, what are the C- after Christmas? What are the CEOs saying about the outlook? They're cautious, um, but they're not uh, sort of frightened. They're they're not seeing, you know, things are going to fall off the cliff type um, outcomes. They're still able to push through price rises. They're still able to cut costs and protect their margins and profitability that way. So, yeah, I mean, that they, they feel they've got a bit of wriggle room and even a little bit of room to grow. So, I mean, this just isn't the screeching halt that you would expect 14 straight rate rises to deliver. Yeah. Well, I mean, one um, uh, uh, result was quite interesting yesterday. I thought it was A2 Milk, where they're yeah. talking about the problems in China. Yes. Uh, and, in fact, the decline in the, the uh, birth rate yeah. as, as being an issue for them. And the, the stock fell, I don't know, 13 or 14% or something. It was a, yeah, yeah. It was a big whack, which probably is interesting. I mean, I suppose it's kind of um, – uh, a bit of an indicator of two two other companies that are kind of rely uh, relying on China as well. Absolutely, I mean it's a funny one, isn't it, Alan? Uh, people seem surprised that the Chinese birth rates plunged, and you might not be able to sell as much infant formula. It's it's a weird one. I mean, I guess falling fertility rates is one of those sort of theoretical things, and perhaps 
A2 Milk's um, warning on sales in China, it, you know, makes it a bit more real. But this is just the China story playing out, I think. I mean, we're seeing all this concern around property developers and um, investment trusts, the slowdown in the general economy. I mean, this is the three Ds, debt, demographics, and demand or deflation, however you want to think about it, in, in China. that This is an economy that's got big sort of structural issues and the the birth rate is one of them. I mean, it, it's funny, uh, youth unemployment is running somewhere about around 21% in China. Um, we say somewhere around that because last week they refused to publish the data, um, which suggests it's probably worse than 21%. I'd say so. So, so you've got this funny sort of world where you know that the the economy the economy's not growing there's not enough young people through the birth rate and the young people there are can't get jobs it's not great fun no and I, I, the property sector looks like uh, the american property sector in 2007 doesn't it i mean you know there's they're starting to fall like nine pins yeah well i guess the one difference you'd have to say though is there's clear oversupply in china whereas in america there i guess there was a, a oversupply in 2008 you're right but yeah, that's right. Maybe, maybe that gets soaked up, but it takes, you know, just trying to have to go through a big GFC type event to get there. Yeah, well, obviously the difference is that China's a centrally planned communist economy, which, um, you know, the government is tightly controlling, and maybe that means that they won't have a GFC. Um, yeah. Who knows? But, uh, you know, there's so much debt there. I mean, crikey, there's... So much debt in China. It's hard to imagine how they'll um, how they'll control it if things start to get out of hand. Yeah, that's that's right. That's right. I mean, but there's a lot of debt everywhere, isn't there? <laughs> it's starting well, to see. Of, speaking of debt, the bond, the US bond rate went up to four point three percent last night. What's the significance of that? Well, I mean, the the, the I guess a. Um, it's a bit of a surprise that yields have been creeping higher over the last two weeks because we all thought the inflation GD had been put in the back in the bottle in the US and rates should be coming down and yields should be coming down. But what we've seen in the last two weeks is yields keep pushing higher and um, there's all sorts of theories. Is it people worried that the US economy is running too hot and the Fed will have to raise rates? I think that's partly the reason. Um is it people worried that the US deficit is so big they're going to have to keep issuing more bonds and you know supply is going to overwhelm demand? I think that's possibly an issue. There's issues in Japan, Japan where they're starting to think about lifting their rates and that will mean that Japanese buyers stay home rather than going to buy US treasuries. And another theory is... You know, the Republicans appear to be sort of falling apart. That could mean the Democrats win in 2024 easily, and that might mean more spending, more stimulus, um, and, and so perhaps yields are reacting to that. I mean, it's probably – the answer is probably E, all of the above. Um, but the question is, you know, China's got lots of debt, but, but America's got lots of debt. Australia's got lots of debt. And and what we're the interesting test, I think, Alan, is how do those are those debt piles sustainable if rates are higher for much longer than we think? Um, yeah. Um, I think that 
That's right. But look, I mean, bond rates, uh, the 10-year uh, bond rate, bond rates generally have been falling for 40 years. Yeah. I mean, it's been, it's been a tailwind for investment assets for 40 years, and that's over now. Clearly, the bond, bond yields have broken out above that, and that's kind of having an, an impact across the board on all investment assets, in particular property, commercial property and infrastructure, which, are, um, which you've been writing a fair bit about Yeah. Um, yeah. in terms of the, the coming crunch for commercial property. And Alan, you know, I mean, I've talked to a lot of the commercial property guys in the last week during reporting season, and I do get this argument when they say, oh, well, rates are just going back to where they normally are. But, you know, I think you had a graph on the, the ABC News that's showing that 40-year decline, and, and that's the point. Yes, okay, they're, they're going back to a level that we knew in the past, but it's the it's the trend that's changed. It's It's not we, we can't just expect necessarily that they, you know, tick up a little bit and then go back down into that 40-year no, no, tailwind no. re-emerges. No, that's right. I think it's um, it's a big change that's occurred and, mm. you know, it's a generational change. In fact, yeah. a couple of generations. Yeah. Before we get on to questions, I just want to mention that um, uh, that story about uh, Anthony Albanese's son getting an internship at PwC was actually on – page one of the Financial Times Asian edition, print edition. Really? Yesterday. And I'm not, I don't know whether to be more surprised at the fact it was on page one or that there is a print edition of the Financial Times that you can well, see uh, in Australia. No, well, I saw it, I, I saw it on the website. For, oh, right. I, mean, okay. who knows? I, don't, I don't get the print edition, but I did. I thought, well, I wonder if it's on the print edition. So you can actually call up the, the print edition front page on the, on, the, uh, on the computer and there it was. There you go. And there um. You go. And the first part says, Australia's Prime Minister arranged a two-week internship for his son at PwC in 2021 in the latest sign of the close ties between the country's government and the consultancy industry, which I think was really an interesting way to frame it. And and it, I suppose it is really. I mean, this is, this is well before PwC was found out as having leaked um, confidential tax information to its yeah. clients. Um, so you know, I mean, obviously, this is um, when you know before before there was a scandal, but still, it, it you know, uh, Albanese didn't ring didn't ring up BHP or Qantas or or anyone else. It was the it was PwC. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it like that. Um, yeah, I mean. <laughs> I, I guess the FT framing's a good way to think about it. This is this whole PwC thing is again is one of the stories of the year because those links between government and consulting have become so ingrained and so tight over such a long period. Um, it's a it's a good point. They're going to be hard to unpick. It's it's not going to come without some pain. Yeah. Anyway, let's get on to questions, eh? Sure. Do you want me to start? Might as well. Okay. Well, Tom asks, as Australia gets so much of its wealth from resources and agriculture, wouldn't our wealth per capita be diluted by significant population growth? I understand skill shortages, etc., but it seems fundamentally easier for everyone to have enough money in a place like Norway compared to India or Russia in terms of natural resources versus human population. Yeah. Look, I think it's a reasonable point, um, except that the sort of population growth we're talking about in Australia is going to get nowhere near the billions that we're talking about with India and, you know, uh, versus Norway, I, you know, yeah, it's, 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 it is going to dilute it a bit, but not, 
not much, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's not it's not as if we're going to be suddenly have a billion dollars worth of uh, oh, sorry, a billion people in the country. Yeah, and small populations are fine, like in Norway, but you need to be prepared to pay high tax rates and um, adjust other things to compensate for a small population. Hmm. Adrian says, I've got two questions, ideas, stroke ideas. Keep the tax keep tax concessions negative gearing but only for a single investment property. Then you could reduce it to 50%, then 25%, then 10% for subsequent properties. This would keep incentives for people to have some investment properties but reduce the likelihood of people holding several, thus freeing the market for others. My second idea is to remove the tax concessions on investment properties but have them on primary residence like I believe they do in America. Are, are there any big flaws in these ideas? Would they help the housing situation? Oh, yeah. I could do. Yeah, I mean, the, the, that's oh, – I think, um, yeah, there'd be some people with multiple investment properties that that would touch. I don't know if it's a massive number, but it's at the edges it would be workable. Um, removing tax concessions on investment properties entirely – Having them on the primary residence. I mean, we have a big CGT concession on the primary residence, so um, we already have them on the primary residence and the investment property. So, yeah, I, I guess taking them off one side of the equation might help, um, Adrian. But as we uh, say a bit on this podcast, uh, that sort of tax reform is politically difficult. Yep. Anthony, uh, considering the long-term deflationary effects of technology like AI and robotics to be the next push, should we reconsider the RBA's 2 to 3% inflation target, especially given its impact on the Aussie housing market, i.e. tech inflation low, drop interest rates, housing up, sorry kids, once again? We had 1.5% um, inflation for quite a while uh, before the, before the uh, pandemic, and um, I think that the 2 to 3% inflation target in that uh, period was a real problem because the RBA cut interest rates too much, in my view, in order to try to get inflation up to 2%. Mm. And it spent, oh, crikey, what, about 10 years almost to trying to do that, certainly, you know, seven or eight years, trying to get inflation up to 2%, um, which was a problem. I mean, I, you know... Interest rates became too low. People borrowed too much, and now, in, now interest rates are back to where they ought to be, or at least back to normal. Um, and everyone's got caught, or a lot of people have got caught with, because they borrowed um, at very low interest rates. So I think the, the main problem, in my view, with the two to three percent inflation target is the two, not the three. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, you know, I mean, getting inflation down to three percent, fair enough. I mean, I think. Sure, um, America's got a two percent target. Uh, our three percent is a bit bit easier to achieve than two, so I'm 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 on, I'm bored with that. I mean, I think you could probably make an argument to allow the inflation target to go up a bit, but if what Anthony's talking about is to bring it down or at least allow um, allow inflation to be less than two percent without. Um, you know, going overboard on interest rates to try to get it back up again, I think he's right. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see on the other side of this. I mean, uh, yeah, it might be a while before we're worried about getting inflation being below target, but um, it'd be interesting to see the the effects of AI and robotics, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, it does, yeah, no, it, oh, no, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel like we're going to be below 2% for a while. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and how big will the impact of AI be? I don't know. Not sure. Hmm. 
let's wait and see. Uh, Nick says, so the Aussie dollar is having a bad few weeks. I get that there are a lot of factors that affect the dollar, but our cash rate lagging overseas rates has to be a contributor. How far does the dollar have to fall before the RBA is dragged, perhaps unwillingly, into more rate rises to defend the currency? Or are there other cards they can play to protect the Aussie dollar that mean they can leave rates alone? Yeah, good question, Nick. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what you reckon, Alan, but uh, I can't see... I think the the RBA sort of just got to cop this, doesn't it? It, it? It's not. I don't think it's going to use rate rises to defend the currency anytime soon. I think this is just this is just an outworking of uh, you know rate differentials, commodity exports looking weak because China's struggling. Um, I don't know. Can you see the RBA coming in to defend the currency with rate rises, Alan? Only if it becomes inflationary. Which, I mean, which a low currency is inherently inflationary because it uh, increases the price of imports. Um, so, but that's the reason. It doesn't do it in order to protect tourists uh, from having to spend too much on uh, their accommodation in Europe. Their apparel spritzes. No, that's right. But, but the, other, the only two ways the RBA can defend the currency is interest rates and buying dollars, buying, buying Australian dollars just straight out, entering the market and then um, buying them to push the price up. So uh, I, I agree with you. I don't think uh, there's no sign that that's likely to happen. I mean, the dollar got down to <clears throat> an all-time low of 48 cents to the US dollar. I can't remember when that was, around about the year 2000. And um, <clears throat> I reckon it would have to go down to 50 cents in order for the uh, RBA to step in. Yeah. So yeah. we're a fair way off that, Nick. Yeah, interesting question though, and I think one everyone's thinking about is the dollar keeps falling. Yeah, that's right. Your turn. Ben says some banks, like proper ones covered by the two hundred and fifty thousand thousand dollar guarantee, are offering term deposit rates around five percent when the RBA is at four point one percent. Why would they do that? Can't they just go and borrow as much as they want from the RBA at four point one percent? Or is my understanding of how the RBA works wrong? It is wrong. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yes. There's no, no way to sugarcoat it, Ben. No, that's right. The the um, the cash rate, they achieve the cash rate not – the cash rate is not the rate at which they lend to banks. The cash rate is simply achieved by them operating in the money market to buy and sell dollars um, on the overnight cash – on the overnight money market, which the banks do operate in. So the, the, the it is the, – the RBA is involved in the, the market for basically – uh, cash. That's how it achieves the um, the uh, the four point one percent cash rate, and that's why they call it a target because the RBA doesn't actually set it. It doesn't say this is the rate. What it does is it it um, operates in the market in the overnight cash market um, in order to achieve the target uh, of what it's after. Mm. Um, separately, it's able to lend to banks for liquidity purposes. Um, and it generally does that a, a bit above the cash rate. Um, and I, I, I've been looking around. I can't see what the current rate, the liquidity rate is. There used to be, during the pandemic, they had something called the Term Funding Facility, the TFF, which um, uh, was, again, just above the cash rate. But in fact, for a while there, it was 0.1%. So they were lending billions of dollars to the banks. Um, yeah, that- at, that's a, that was a special case, though, wasn't it? There was. That's right. So they, but that term funding facility is now finished. Yeah, and and uh, Ben, that is why you are seeing term deposit rates off at around five percent because the cheap money that the banks 
got from the RBA, a one-off during the pandemic is now about to expire and they need to replace that funding. The cheapest source of funding they can find is uh, deposits from customers. So to, in order to try and get those deposits, they're all competing on deposit rates, um, term deposit rates, cash transaction accounts, savings accounts. And that's why you're seeing some great deposit offers around because they want your money because it's cheap form of funding to replace the, the this RBA one-off that they got during the pandemic. So that explains why you're seeing generous uh, term deposit rates on offer. The, the, the banks need your cash. Hmm. Mark says, will stage three tax cuts definitely go ahead? And if so, are they likely to increase inflation? Do you think the Reserve Bank Board have factored this into their numbers? I'm all for them to go ahead. Just interested in your thoughts on this one. Well, Jim Chalmers is uh, doing this strange week-long release of the intergenerational uh, report, um, the full version of it. Dribbling out bits of it. I know. He's amazing, isn't he? He's (laughs) dribbling out bits of it every day. Oh, one of the great Feed the Chooks... uh, feed the chooks in the media exercises I've seen. But I guess, again, I've said this about Chalmers before, he is trying to create a bit of a national conversation about this thing. He's trying to take the week and say, hey, we need to think about this. And, and, you know, it goes back to that stuff that the Commonwealth Bank released about how um, older savers are doing really well and younger borrowers are not doing well. And this is stuff that we need to think about. So... Uh, you know, it's it's interesting that it's being rolled out over a week, but um, yeah. But are you raising that because you think that he's going to use the inter- intergenerational report well, it, it, in order had, to drop or re- or change the stage? No, in, in fact, quite the opposite. I think in today's AFR, he says it's going to go ahead. There's no plans to not do it, and I believe that um, today's bit of the inter- intergenerational report actually supports those stage three tax cuts because it says we need to be wary of the working population uh, shrinking as it will be over the next X number of years, uh, you know, having carrying too much of the tax burden. Um, so, that, sorry, that was my long-winded way of linking that to uh, the intergenerational report. Yeah. And as for the Reserve Bank, yeah, look, they probably have factored it in. I mean, certainly the... Uh I mean, their, their forecast for inflation to come down to target is uh, basically was in the middle of 2025. Now it's the end of 2025, yeah. um, which is well into stage three tax cut territory, which is starting next year. Yeah. Um, yeah. So their forecasts obviously have to include that and um, they still think that even with – the stage three tax cuts, they'll get the, inf- the inflation rate back to three percent by the end of ne- by the end of twenty twenty five. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, Alan? Uh, the the front page of the AFR today is about the forty year outlook for growth in the intergenerational report. The latest update. You think of the difficulties the RBA's had with forty uh, week outlooks for growth, and you um, probably need to take the forty year outlook uh, with a touch of salt. I would have thought, yes, a grain or two. A grain or two. Yes. Uh, Alex says, I found your comments on last week's podcast about how Australia should abandon climate change mitigation to save money for adaption confusing. Voters in Ecuador this week are most likely voting to leave some of their oil reserves in the ground at great financial cost, about $16 billion US, to prevent climate change. 
Would you agree that Australia, would you argue that Australia do the opposite, abandon our climate goals and continue developing new coal and gas projects so that we are better off financially than Ecuador, just so we can afford to run air conditioning in freestanding homes, less energy efficient than medium high density, as well as being more car dependent and keep rebuilding homes on floodplains. Oh, you've got Alec fired up here, Alan. Of course not. I mean, crikey, Alec. All I was saying was that we should not We should do what we have proposed to do uh, and no more. Um, that, uh, you know, any any suggestion that we should do a whole lot more than we're currently doing is, I think, a mistake because the money's going to be – because, firstly, nothing we do is going to change the um, the climate Um We've obviously got to do our bit as a part of the world, no doubt about it. I'm not suggesting otherwise. I'm certainly not suggesting we abandon climate change mitigation at all. But uh, but I do think, and I suppose the point about what I was saying, and, the, and I was, it was a column in the New Daily, um, is that the uh, the cost that we well the, the headline I wrote for that piece was we should hope for 1.5 degrees of warming and plan for three or two or, you know, like more. We should plan. We should basically plan for um, a lot more warming than, than everyone's kind of thinking because it's not going to be 1.5 degrees. It's going to be at least two. And that's huge. I mean, the, the impact on um, on us and the world of two degrees of warming is going to be enormous. Yeah. And, and so the government needs to marshal its resources. I think that I don't think anyone really is getting their heads around properly around what this is going to cost. You know, in terms of insurance, um, in terms of bailing people out who aren't insured. I mean, I think, um, uh, you know, uh, there's a million people living on floodplains in Australia, and there's a lot of there's two hundred fifty thousand people living in Australia um, within one meter of um, uh, of high tide, and there's something like I'm just trying to remember that it's something like 250 or 300 million people in the world living um, within a meter of high tide, and the the, the sea level is going to rise by a meter. Um, mm. So there's there's going to be hundreds of millions of refugees, uh, and, yeah, yeah. and a lot of them are going to want to live here. I mean, what are we going to do? I mean, I'm I'm to be honest, I'm a bit uh, concerned about it. To be honest, yes. No, I, I, this, uh, Alan. Alan, I reckon. I, I reckon you and Alec are on the same page on on this stuff. Actually, I, I don't think I think Alec might be being a bit provocative, but that, that's not not necessarily a bad thing. I, I, you know, I spoke to the insurers yesterday. IAG, fifteen um, percent motor insurance increases, twenty percent house insurance increases. Now. That should calm down a bit as inflation comes under control. But the the the, the insurance question here is is huge. Reinsurers are running out of the, the, the capital in in the world for reinsurance, which is the insurance that insurers buy, is shrinking. And Australia used to be seen as this great market where, okay, there was, you know, land of sweeping planes and bushfires and all that sort of thing. But generally, it was pretty good risk. Not anymore. The, the risks are going up and so the prices are going up. The I- insurance premium increases that we're seeing at the moment, they're not a one-off because of inflation. Insurance prices will be going up forever. They will never stop going up. And I'm, I'm with you. Uh, the, the other challenge we've got is... 
we need to build lots of houses to solve our housing affordability crisis. We need to build lots of infrastructure because our cities are creaking a bit. We need to build the uh, transmission and renewable projects for um, re required for the energy transition. And I'm with you. We need to build lots of infrastructure for climate mitigation. There's just not enough resources and people to do all this stuff. Uh, yeah, I'm a bit dispirited like you, Alan. I've, we're juggling some massive balls and, you know, from some of the issues that we get so excited about um, are not the right ones. But anyway, there's a rant for you. Yeah. Should we finish with Lewis's question because it's a good one? Yeah, righto. Uh Alan, I saw on ABC you said that the unemployment rate is unmoved despite all the rate hikes and the increase in the civilian working age population. Is it possible it's all due to young people turning of age who are still at mum and dad's place, sleeping in their spare room, eating their food and asking chat GPT to write them a resume? Do you think Lewis may be projecting here, Alan? Possibly. <laughs> I don't know. I don't actually see the connection, really. I mean, for a start, unemployment started to move. It's gone up to 3.7% now, but um, it's still very low. Yeah. And, and Lewis, one of the things I reckon Phil Lowe talks about this a lot, and he'll talk about it even more on his way out, is youth unemployment is at record low levels. So, sorry, might be your kid who's uh, in the spare room eating the eating your food and talking to Chat GPT, but uh, generally young people are out there um, working at least one job or possibly two in the uh, vain hope that they might be able to afford a property to rent or buy like their parents. Uh, I, I'd be <laughs> I'd be careful about putting it on the young people at the moment. They um that they uh, they have every right to be able. To, be a bit frustrated with the hand that they've been dealt. Quite right. Well, very good. Thank you very much, James, um, for uh, making yourself available at this time of day, which uh, I can tell you is very early. But anyway. <laughs> no worries, Alan. Thanks, it's, everyone, uh... for listening. Thanks for listening, everyone. Um, we'll be taking a break for a fortnight. Um, so, look, if you've got a question for us, send it in to the money cafe at eurekareport.com.au and we'll get to it when we get back. Um, but... Uh, but uh, Greg and I are, aw are, are away for a couple of weeks um, for a holiday. James is around, but uh, you're going to be on your own, so we'll just have to leave it there. We'll see you in two weeks. Until then, I'm Alan Cole, founder of Eureka Report, etc. And I'm James Thompson, senior Chanticleer columnist at the Australian Financial Review. Have a great break, Alan and Greg. <laughs>